Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast, episode 99. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special guest is Dan Denning. He's the co-author of the Bonner Denning Letter. Along with his co-author, Bill Bonner, Dan writes about the stock market, classical economics, and classical liberal values like sound money, limited government, and the rule of law. He began his financial publishing career in 1997 and has lived and worked in London, Paris, Melbourne, and he can be found on Twitter at Daniel K. Denning. Welcome to the show, Daniel. It's great to have you on. Thank you. So, Dan, we're, we're kind of stable mates within the Agora Empire. Would you like to say a bit about, well, firstly, what you do and also what Agora does? Sure. Uh, I think after... 23 years, I can finally answer that question. Uh, it took me a while, though, but uh, Agora started back in the late 1970s as an alternative publisher. And, and back then, alternative didn't mean what it means today. It, it meant that people wanted a source of analysis or ideas or perspective on financial markets, mostly, that was not available through the mainstream media. And of course, back then, the mainstream media was really the only media. It was print, broadcast, radio. And I'm not sure a lot has changed in the UK in that regard, but um, it was not so much just an alternative, like, you know, you get a second opinion at a doctor, but but offering another explanation for what was going on in the world. And with respect to financial markets, it was uh, that there that you had to understand economics and you had to understand money if you wanted to be a better investor. And uh, I came along, to cut a long story short, I started with Agora back in 1997. I came out of um, graduate school as a liberal arts major, and I randomly met uh, a colleague who I was in school with. And shortly thereafter, I met Bill Bonner, who had started Agora back in the 1978. And I've had a lot of different hats in that time, uh, but mostly started as a small cap stock picker in a bull market, which is the best time to start your career in a bull market as a stock picker. And then um, since then, I've uh, held different roles as managing editor. And then when we first crossed paths, I think I was uh, running the US version of the Fleet Street letter. And then I ended up in London several times, uh, shortly as the publisher in 2016 to 2018. And uh, now I'm working with Bill Bonner, who's kind of my mentor, and I just write a monthly newsletter called The Bonner Denning Letter. So I finally made it. I get my name mentioned in the same breath as Bill. And uh, we just do kind of what you do, Tim, um, although probably not as well. We look at the world from the top down, uh, macroeconomically, probably historically and culturally. And then we give very general asset allocation and strategy advice. So we don't do the stock picking that you do, but um, you know we try to take stock of the world once a month and tell people what happened and, and what they should do. So it would be fair to say, I mean, so I've been writing for, uh, writing a newsletter called The Price Report now for over a decade for Bill's UK operation. It would be fair to say, would it not, that there is a kind of broad, broad libertarian streak running through the business? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and you know, that used to not be controversial, but but it, it's increasingly controversial because I would say the idea is rooted in this classical liberal conception of economics that um, that individual liberty, 
limited government, sound money, low taxes, freedom of speech, the Bill of Rights, Magna Carta. That these are sort of the institutional guidelines which allow people to flourish uh, uh, in doing whatever they want to do. So it's rather a shame. It's rather a shame we don't have any of those now. <laughs> well, it's really quite shocking how quickly some of these things that were under assault when you and I started working together again on the you know the book that you wrote, the War on Caste. We talked yeah. about some of these encroachments on individual liberty, both politically and economically, because they're two sides of the same coin, really. Uh, and then this virus thing just seems to have sent all of that into hyperspace. So. Uh, I think these issues are more important than they ever have been, at least in uh, certainly in my professional lifetime. It's yeah. What I find particularly interesting right now, I mean, there's so much to talk about, but what I find particularly interesting is from going back to, I think for me, the instigating development of the last, well, really forever, but certainly the last you know, decade or so was the Brexit vote. So I, I didn't become personally that politically minded until brexit and then brexit sort of focused me focused my mind on on sort of some of the bigger issues and and also the nature of government and more to the point that the the whole tenor of the brexit debate um was a real eye-opener for me about the the absolute dross level of the mainstream media and if if brexit sort of cause the scales to fall from my eyes then you know the sort of the second the second knockout punch has been um covid19 if i was disturbed at the quality ethical standards of the mainstream media before i just have no i had just have no time for them anymore in other words it's the 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 rot the rot set in about four years ago but it's it's from from my perspective, the whole mainstream media uh, entity is 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 now just a sort of rotten facade, crumbling from within. Yeah, I I think uh, I think you're spot on too. That it it started in uh, in your country when uh, when everyone was shocked uh, about the referendum, and uh, what it did, at least from my perspective, is it it flushed out the people who had been hiding in plain sight. And had been cloaking themselves with the cover of institutions that had credibility with the public. So the public trusted certain institutions to be objective or impartial, or to not have a hidden agenda. And uh, I, I don't really care what you know. I don't. Everyone's entitled to to espouse their political beliefs, but but they're not entitled to be deceitful about it. And I think Brexit, and then later uh, Donald Trump's election. Mm has just driven some people in the establishment, not only in academia, but the media and, and even in finance, it's just driven them nuts. And they've, they've dropped all pretense about their, um, about what they really think uh, about the world and politics and money. And in that sense, I think it's probably a positive development. So we, we know what we're dealing with, but mm. it sure is a bitter old place right now. So you probably get some of our headlines and some information from our media and we, vice versa, get it from from yours. Would you say that the American press is in a similar, or the American media is in a similar state to ours? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I, I just got back from Australia and I was there for about two months. So I, I got there in late February and left in, in mid-May. And uh, I was watching both the US press and the British press from abroad. And uh, it's just... Uh, I think in your case, since I lived there and was in the middle of it for a while, 
I just can't believe the uh, single-minded focus on what Dominic Cummings did and the government's response. It's it's just like a pack of jackals. And I, I think if you step back from it, or at least from my perspective, it it looks like a recreation of the dynamic during the Brexit debate, that anyone who is a Remainer and had this different idea of Britain has now decided that all of that transfers to criticizing the government, which some of which may be quite legitimate about whether centralized government is fit for purpose in addressing some problems. But it's just, uh, it's the same thing in the U.S. too, where everything has been politicized and everything is viewed and analyzed and presented uh, as a political issue. And it's just exhausting, really, which is why I mostly ignore it. But it it's kind of hard to ignore right now as well, because in our line of work, you have to be abreast of what's happening in the world. And, you know, for example, right now with Hong Kong and uh, what what the, the what the Communist Party is trying to do there and what the U.S. response is, what the British response is, these things do affect uh, financial markets. They affect currency values. They affect um, asset markets. So you have to be plugged in. But it just looks like madness to me. It looks like a pathology. And it looks like in the modern world, people have just gone off the deep end and have become hyper-partisan. And now, honestly, uh, violent towards one another. You know, People yelling at each other in the streets, um, trying to shame each other. And of course, there's a whole new element added here in the United States with uh, uh, the recording of someone who was murdered by the police in, in Minneapolis. So it's going to be a very, very, I think this summer, I wasn't alive in 1968, but I imagine for this generation, this is going to be like the helter skelter, which may have been 69, but it feels to me like that's where we're at culturally. I guess what we we are losing in all of the media is nuances about certain stories. Everything, like you say, is so polarized. Yeah, I agree. I mean, uh, even in the last, really since Twitter came around and, and Facebook, but maybe starting back with 95, 96 with the internet, the, the speed and volume of information that's been available to everyone, including investors, has increased. But that doesn't mean the quality of our decision making or even the, the way in which we make decisions has improved. And I think what we're finding is the speed and volume of information, act with unless you're grounded in some sound principles, particularly financially, will degrade the quality of your decision-making. And to, to, to bring it back to where I know Tim and I have common ground, you cannot leave central banks uh, out of this conversation in terms of their culpability. Because if you talk about long-term planning and, uh, and thinking about the future, the fact that interest rates have been, in real terms, brought below zero and held there as a policy decision um, compresses the time frame that people think about when they act. So, so if you can't earn interest on your savings uh, and you can't earn interest on uh, most fixed income without taking a risk in high yield or junk bond stuff, then uh, then your time horizon is compressed as well. So you see this in the average holding periods of equities in the U.S. You see it where Charles Schwab and other brokerages in the U.S. actually eliminated um, commissions on trading just to encourage trading. So the whole culture is about not thinking about the future. It's about profit maximization, uh, even at the expense of the welfare of the customer or the employee. 
And so what do you get? You get people who are running around reacting to data, which may or may not be relevant. It's, it could be trivial, but uh, this idea that every single piece of news affects the intrinsic value of a security is rubbish. You know, it just doesn't make any sense. Yet we have, we've created an entire financial culture um, that treats it as if it's true. And, and central banks play a huge role in, uh, in shrinking those time horizons and causing people to be extremely reactive, which, which doesn't really help the, uh, your P&L over the long term as an investor. Do you, do you really think we have, we have markets anymore? Or is, is the whole system a kind of you know, everything's seen through the prism of you know the, the the Powell put, the Fed put, the Fed has our back. You know, QE, Q, QE. It, I, I saw a, a piece earlier today. Uh, I forget who who the author was, but it was along the lines of, uh, it was probably just chatter on on Twitter, which was you know pointing out that the 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 suspension of convertibility between the dollar and gold was introduced as a temporary measure in 1971, and of course it's been with us for 50 years. Um, so. You know, QE launches a, a temporary emergency measure, but it's now become a, a, a fixture of the financial markets. Do we have financial markets anymore? I'm not sure we do. No, of course not. I, I, and there's, uh, well, I say of course. I think to you and I, we, we've probably been thinking about that and talking about it. And there's other people who've described markets now as a sort of public utility designed to manage the retirement assets of a large demographic group. And in that respect, they can't be allowed to not function, to not go up. And so what you have since since really 2009, since the Great Recession, is this extraordinary level of intervention by the central bank to provide liquidity. And so that's said at the time that that was necessary so that markets could function normally. But markets were functioning normally. What they were saying is that the price for risk assets was much lower than what Wall Street wanted it to be. And it was so low, in fact, that it was going to put a lot of people out of business. And I, I think now you're seeing another iteration of that. So the Fed's balance sheet is, is now over $7 trillion. And they've gotten involved in buying directly and indirectly high-yield, uh, low-quality, non-investment-grade corporate bonds. And what they're saying is uh, that these markets aren't functioning, so we're going to provide liquidity which is to say these companies can't pay money back because their business model doesn't work. So we're going to buy their bonds. That's not a market. Uh, That's just uh, liquidity driving asset values, which is a perfectly legitimate reason for someone to buy stocks, by the way. They could say, look, I'm going to be rational and I'm going to be realistic. I'm not going to be an absolutist. I'm not going to be orthodox. If I know that the Swiss National Bank and the Federal Reserve and the European Central Bank and perhaps the Bank of England and certainly the Bank of Japan are all going to actively support asset prices, then that's me. I'm covered and I'm going to buy. And I don't care about valuations. I don't care about forward earnings multiples. All I know is that liquidity supports the market. That's why you see the S&P back over 3,000. And that's why everyone's happy. But it's also why you see at least in the United States, the 50% of the adult population that doesn't own stocks and this almost 50 million people who've lost their jobs in the last three months, that doesn't work for them. So now we have a political problem. We have stock markets at or near all-time highs with a huge portion of the working population who may not be able to pay their rent uh, and who may not 
be able to get back into the job market. So it's going to be, so we don't have markets anymore. Now we have something else. We have a social and economic toxic mix that's been created by the central bank and it's boiling. Do you think there's any way out of this trap? Oh man. I mean, well, I was going to save it for later, but when you described uh, the media that I'm consuming that might be lighthearted, I realized that this this doesn't count. So I'm reading a book called Monetary Regimes and Inflation, <laughs> which which is as thrilling as you might describe. Uh, but the it's by Peter Bernholtz, and he he's describing how inflations can end, either in fiat money systems or metallic money systems, and whether they end by a policy choice or they end because the currency is destroyed. So, so there are policy choices that can prevent uh, the destruction of a monetary regime. I guess I'm begging the question because I think I think that has to end. I think this era of uh, uh, central bank intervention in markets and low interest rates has to normalize. But I don't think it's going to normalize through a policy choice. I think it's going to normalize through historical forces. So to me, the two periods in history that that are most accurate are 1789 France mm. and 1968 China and the US. You either have just more wacky monetary revolution, like the equivalent of wartime finance to finance what we've done to our economy because of this virus, where we create either something like the Azigna, the French debt, or, or even like you guys did, the perpetual bonds, mm. that we just redefine what money is to pay for the damage we've done to our system, thereby destroying the system, or you get a, a, a political revolt. And I, th- I think that's just as likely uh, in both the US and the UK, more likely in the US because it's an election year. There's a book that I, I continually um, rate, that I continually recommend, called... Um, 40 Centuries of Wage and Price Controls, um, how, how Not to Control Inflation, I think is the sub, subtitle, but it's available. You can buy You can get it. You'd have to pay for it. You can get it for free as a PDF from the Mises website. Um, but the clue is in the title that throughout basically all, all of recorded history, governments have always tried to intervene in the economy for their own ends, and it in, it, it always ends badly, or rather... It may not end badly, but the intervention always leads to further distortions that then require further interventions. And you have this sort of never-ending cycle of the government basically mucking mucking it up. Um, my take on this would be, and it's I, I don't have the the economics background to to legitimise this argument, so it's much more of a gut feel, maybe perhaps a historical perspective rather than an economic one is that there's so much debt in the system uh it there's no way on earth it can possibly be paid back so the 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 the, the three boxes that the governments are sort of sort of you know looking at either in amazement or or uh, horror box number one is is keep the debt serviced engineer enough economic growth to, to you know to keep the debt on you know to keep the debt alive uh, that's I think impossible the second box is called default or if you prefer if we want to be slightly more um, polite about it then it's a debt jubilee or it's some kind of reset uh, but anything that basically significantly changes that the order of debt by way of something like a default would instantaneously cause the collapse of the global pension system. So let's let's not go there. So what's in box number three? What's in box number three has been what's been the 
preferred and ultimately always used method throughout all history, which is called inflation. So for me, it's, it, it, it's a fairly stark conclusion that the one thing as an investor that I want more than anything else right now is inflation protection. And I, and the needless to say that, that takes us to things like, well, first it takes us to, to quality value stocks, but it also takes us naturally and inevitably to gold, to gold and silver. Um, but, but maybe that's wrong. But, but uh, for, for the life of me, I haven't yet heard any counter argument that, that manages to successfully dissuade me of that. I think it's right. I, I think what uh, why people discount it right now is because in the immediate aftermath of the um, the virus and then the political response to the virus, the the primary forces that have been unleashed in the real economy are massively deflationary in terms of GDP, in terms of wages and labor, uh, and a contraction in in business lending and investment. You know all of these things that. Uh, that you'd normally measure that inflation might start to show up in. But I compared it in my last newsletter to uh, the Boxing Day tsunami, really any tsunami. But I was in London uh, back then on the Boxing Day tsunami. And I read a story later. I can't remember what the name of the tribe is, but there was a a tribe of uh, people that lived off the coast of Thailand and the Indian Ocean. And they're, you know, they're not dolphins. They're they're human beings, but they spend a lot of time in the water. And so they, their children actually can see underwater differently. They're able to contract their pupils. And, can, you know, it's, it's kind of an interesting story from an evolutionary point of view. But they, uh, they were aware that when the tide went out, it would come back um, as, a, as a giant wave. And they called it the wave that eats people. And it was part of their oral tradition that that when that happened, you needed to go seek the high ground. And so only one person from the entire tribe was killed in the Boxing Day tsunami. And it was someone, unfortunately, who they just forgot. It was an older person who wasn't terribly mobile. But I, to, to apply it now, I, I think what, what the virus didn't cause uh, the leveraged financial system. That, that existed prior to the virus. But it was sort of the proximate cause of, of this disappearance of liquidity. Uh, and the Fed saw that and said, "Oh, we'll we'll fix that. We'll just throw everything we have to try to restore liquidity." But what we've told our readers is that that tide is still going out. Uh, the liquidity is still disappearing from corporate bond markets, and the Fed might be able to 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 give the appearance that those markets are functioning normally, but businesses aren't function, functioning normally. They're not generating cash flow. They're not going to be able to service that debt. And so all of that extra liquidity will come back in the form of inflation. And when it does, you do not want to be owning uh, assets that lose their value. Yeah, so we're out of bonds completely. Uh, we probably have too much cash. But you know, I'm back in Colorado now. I'm looking at physical real estate. Um, and then, as you said, I, I think the big question for equity investors is, how do equities behave in that environment, and will there finally be a snapback in the in this in these factor investments? Like, so you compare momentum and technology, which is you know vastly outperformed value in a liquidity-driven market. Will that reverse, and will you will you be safer and do better over the next ten years in those type of equities? But but I think that that is the big big question about inflation, because even yesterday, James Bullard from the Federal Reserve said, don't worry about it. Uh, we can normalize the balance sheet without 
uh, triggering any inflation in the real economy. So they can grow the money supply, M2, without an increase in the velocity of money that's out there in the real economy doing work. I think that's the big question about how soon this inflation sets in. But I'm with you, Tim. I think it has to, you know, you can either reschedule it, uh, you can redefine it, you can convert the debt into equity, which is one way of just redefining the nature of the obligation. Um, or you can uh, you can try and do what uh, what the British did. And George Soros says the European Union should do, which is just issue debt that never has to be paid off and just pay the principal. So just reschedule it so that it never matures, and all you're ever doing is paying off the interest. So it's a perpetual bond. But those are all sort of end game, end game things, and that's where we're at. We're in the end game of the fiat regime that started in 1973. The frustration I, I have is that, again, to go back to Brexit, that Brexit for me, one of the many facets of Brexit was that it was potentially an opportunity to, to reset and resize the system in terms of government. In terms of you know getting rid, having like a bonfire of the quangos and having a bonfire of red tape and all this kind of stuff, and unfortunately, whether or not that was ever likely to happen, COVID nineteen has basically just reversed everything that, that could possibly have happened in that direction. So instead, we've now got you know the rise of the the return of the big state, big government is back uh, and calling the shots. And I, I I was watching I was studying watching a documentary about Thomas Jefferson, and who uh, seems to be apart from probably one of the most intelligent people who who ever lived, also one of the most contradictory. There were all kinds of interesting, you know, foibles or facets to it to, to his to his uh, life. So, for example, he's the guy that drafted the Declaration of Independence, but he also owned hundreds of slaves. Um, so all men are not necessarily as equal as others. And the, the, the point I'm getting to is that he, he was a, a profound, apparently a profound believer in, in, in government being as small as small as humanly possible. And it just struck me, one of the most uh, striking things I ever heard any of our guests say over the last few years was from your uh, a, a, a professor in economics, um, professor Jörg Guido Hulsman, who's a German guy who teaches in France. And we had Jörg on probably a year ago. And we said, and he's an Austrian Austrian school uh, classical economist. And I, I, I remember we asked him, if there's one thing you could change about the system, what would it be? And I was expecting a response in terms of you know, the financial system. And his response was, I would get a government out of the education business, which I thought was a fascinating answer. And then, so um, I'll, I will, I will wrap this this diatribe up within the next t- five or ten minutes, perhaps. Um, <laughs> and he, it, it, and what it brought home to me was, or rather, this crisis. What it's brought home to me is everybody is looking at, to government to solve these problems. They're not appreciating that government is the problem. It is the effing problem. You know, we would have a better outcome here if government had nothing to do with our health system, for example. Germany seems to have done a much better job. And, and from what I understand of the German healthcare system, a lot of it's private. So everything that people have been trained to do is wrong. Government arguably should have nothing or as little as possible to do with healthcare. And it should have as little as possible to do with education. And it should have as little as possible to do with a damned economy. Discuss. Well, I think, I think um, I, in, in one of my recent newsletters, I call it the era of unlimited money and unlimited government. So uh, money is no object. It's divorced from 
gold or any anchor in the financial system. And then uh, you, you could compare the secular faith and central authority today to the religious faith of the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages, that it's universal, um, that it's orthodox, that even in the face of objective facts, like the fact that the the sun does not revolve around the earth, the institutional authority of the church mandated that people believe certain things. And I think, you know, that, I don't know, I, I think that's by design, by the way, you know, Lenin said it, uh, during the Russian Revolution and the Bolshevik Revolution, I think he said something like, "Give me the children for four or five years, and I'll have them forever." And you know, we, uh, literacy rates in the United States now are lower than they were at the end of the 19th century, when education was done at the local level, and people learned practical skills and real skills. Uh, but since then, because the world is bigger and and the world is more centralized. It's uh, become more standardized. And, uh, and also, to be fair, I, I think it's more about, as you guys know from dealing with the European Union, centralization and revolutions at a political level, they're not, they're not in my view, about making the world better. They're about power. Mm. And Orwell wrote that uh, eloquently in 1984 that it's just about power. And, and a lot of these things that, that COVID has done which is why we're, I think, now talking about it, is for the same people that wanted to retain bureaucratic centralized power as part of the European Union, COVID is now an excuse to not only tell people what they must think, but how they must behave and where they're allowed to physically go. So it's become the ultimate vehicle to exercise state authority over the individual. And that's why it's quickly become a flashpoint between people who were quite reasonable about not wanting to kill their grandparents or their parents by making them sick, but now say, well, hang on. And, and Tim, you, you sent me the link to, to um, Steve Baker's eloquent and mournful mm. vote on the suspension of liberties, which was intended to be for how long and is, is now where it is. So mm. I think it's um, – I'm not wholly um, – um, I'm not discouraged entirely, but I think it's the first time a lot of people have confronted this idea that these liberties that that have been around for hundreds of years in the Western world are the exception and not the rule. Mm. And em- emergencies become the pretext for surrendering them for a long time. And mm. we're kind of in the crucible right now. Dan, I wanted to circle back to your comments earlier about the central bank and you, the way you were describing the operations seemed to give the impression that, that they are becoming increasingly desperate to prop up the system. Could not one of the outcomes from this be deflation rather than inflation? We end up with a Japanese-style situation. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, from the, a lot of people I, I know in the press who don't like to be quoted in public about it, think that that's the likely scenario and that that's not a bad scenario. You know, they say, well, look at Japan. Oh, it's hang, a on, hang country. on, hang on. It's not a bad scenario. No, it's an awful scenario. Well, this is what I think, but they see it as, a, well, it's a natural evolution of a sort of aging society demographically uh, in a global world where the price of labor has gone down. And so you're, you have fewer firms that have that create lots of value for shareholders. And so all the profits go to the 
firms with intellectual property that don't make stuff, and that deflation is just uh, wouldn't be a bad outcome if that if what we're talking about is Japan, then why are we so afraid of it? That's the argument that I hear. But Tim, I mean, you you guys, I don't know what you think about that, Paul. I mean, when I think of it, I think that deflation is um, is a destruction of money and it's a destruction of debt. And the debt is misallocated capital. And misallocated capital is a fancy way of saying uh, risk capital that didn't create value. It was just flushed away. So to me, that's that's lost time, lost labor, lost savings. But there are other people who say, you just get over it. It's, it's not that bad. Yeah, well, I, th- I think one thing that deflation does is it puts the onus back on to the person who's borrowed money and there's less there's less of it around to pay it back. So in some ways, it would make those with too much debt more more financially honest. But the problem there is if you also have the counterweight of the central bank trying to reverse that situation, you end up with a, a, exactly the same situation where they're just increasing the debt by more and more to try and eventually reverse it, which is again, what we've had in, in Japan. And it, it sort of it links to the absolute level of debt to GDP that we should worry about. And, you know, many times I've, I've said that if Japan has, has got over 250, 270% of GDP and other countries like the US and the UK and within Europe don't have numbers anywhere near that, should we really, inverted commas, I might add, be worried. What the Fed can do is effectively unlimited. Well, it's, it's un- sorry to interrupt, but it's unlimited until confidence is lost in, in the system. system. Well, that well, that's the point. Uh, what I think will happen is there'll be the law of unintended consequences, and you will lose control of something, and that will either be the currency, or you will get inflation via another route, which could create stagflation, like. Oil prices will go up to $150 while the economy still is is not moving forward. And it would it will just be something else that you hadn't thought of that they hadn't thought of because that's the way markets work. Yeah, I mean, it's a huge question too. But I, and, and I think that's what makes it so fascinating um, to think that we live in a historical time like that. Um, and maybe we shouldn't be fascinated because uh, I think everyone – Everyone who's ever been alive probably thinks they lived in pretty interesting times and that you know there was a lot at stake during their lifetime. But I think we're we're living through um transition phase in in uh how we think about money or what we think money is. So that's why even in the last year or two, this uh argument for modern monetary theory or for the elimination of cash. These are arguments for redefining what the physical limits are to growth and to debt. And Paul, it's like you said that a year ago, people would have said that it's not feasible for Western countries like Italy, Germany, the UK, or the US to have debt to GDP levels that are similar to Japan because Japan could afford them. It had savings and uh, it ran a trade surplus and uh, and it could afford it. It was it was paying for most of its own debt from its own public. The, the, big, the big factor with the U.S. is that China, the U.K., hedge funds, Japan, those have been the main consumers up until now of the increase in the U.S. public debt. So they've been financing the increase in deficits. Now the Fed is doing that. And I think that's – you can call it wartime finance or you can call it debt monetization – 
but that's really the central issue now is is it is it is it real is it sustainable for a central bank to do what powell said to print money digitally to fund government spending which is infinite what and the answer is no it's it's not real uh it doesn't seem like it physically can last for a long time so maybe it's credulity like tim said uh or maybe it's some other factor that that leads to the end of that system, which is why I compared it to revolutionary France. I think that's what we're in. And I think the stock market is completely divorced from that. I think it's entirely supported by liquidity. And I, I hate to be the guy that argues with the market because I think I'm smarter. I know that's a, that's a huge career mistake. And if I was managing money, I'd probably be in big trouble for, for maintaining the position that we have. But, uh, but I think for investors, you know, that's what we're trying to do for them in, in answering that question is saying, well, what is really going on here? And what we think is really going on is people have tried to redefine what money is, and it's really just inflationism. And it's going to create um, not just problems for the financial system, which will, will result in a currency crisis, but it's creating problems in society and in our politics, which are not just dangers to your financial wealth. But there are dangers to your material well-being and to your physical well-being, and that's that's a separate problem. But that's part of what we're trying to encourage people to think about. Chris McIntosh, who's a hedge fund guy we had on a, a few weeks ago, uh, expressed it rather rather well when he said, "If this shit worked, then Zimbabwe would be part of the G7." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's it's just it's, people have perform this mental trick on themselves and they, you know, it's become mainstream that the idea has, it's like that idea it's, of the Overton window where something goes yeah. from not being part of public policy, not being possible to suddenly being fully embraced. And that, so that could last, you know, you could see, you could see new highs on the indices uh, and you could see debt to G like when, when I first started writing about the feds balance sheet, it was 20% of us GDP and now it's 30%. To catch up with the ECB, it has to be forty percent. So that's another another ten trillion dollars. Is that do people think that's unrealistic? I don't think so. I think the government's going to borrow a lot of money. A lot of businesses are going to go bankrupt, and the Fed has just you know decided that it's willing to until someone stops it, it's going to keep printing money. So we we are we're kind of down the rabbit hole that way. Mm. We're certainly starting to see more and more pressure to the upside on precious metals. And and indeed, if we look at, at demand for oil, maybe very low, but certainly the the price has rebounded very quickly. And I've I've always had the feeling that something as precious as as a natural resource like oil would not stay low for very long, um, because no matter what you think about this lockdown, it's eventually going to end, of course. And e economic activity in whatever form has got to got to continue. And there are certain countries, China, who will jump at the chance at low oil prices um, to, to fund whatever they need to do in terms of their, their expansion. So there, there are signs more on, in line with inflation than deflation. But it's, it's a big niggling doubt to me that um, the, what you were saying earlier about the, the number of businesses that will inevitably go under and the wave that wave of defaults on the system I, I can't see that in itself being inflationary and therefore um 
I'm very cautious about how the. I mean, the, at the moment, the markets are going up and have continued to be remarkably strong, and I, and I think that was quite a rational output from the fact that a lot of money got pumped into the system, and it is a different situation to the crisis eight nine crisis. Well, I I think there's also a question of how quickly things go back to the way they were and. And I don't think they will. I'm not a. I don't subscribe to the theory that everything has changed. You know, when you see these Parisian restaurants where people are eating in the sort of cone of silence, that's nonsense. That is just not going to happen. You know, people are people who want to go out and eat a nice meal in Paris are not going to surround themselves in personal protective equipment. You know, they're just going to assume the risk of having a nice French meal. But I think what has happened, and this this to me will is the real destructive part of the policy response is the people who talk, the, the politicians who have taken these measures to lock down the economy, determine what businesses are essential, what jobs are essential. Most of them, and I'm not going to say all of them, but I'll say most of them have never met a payroll in their life. They've never started a business. They've never failed in a business. They've never washed dishes for six hours. They've never waited a table on a, uh, a family of five from Des Moines whose kids are hungry and they didn't like the grilled cheese. Like they, They've never been in the marketplace. They've never been um, part of the free enterprise system where you have to provide a service to someone who wants it and do it in a, at a level where you can make a profit. And the reason I mentioned that is they believe now that they can flip the on switch to the economy just in the way they flipped the off switch. They believe that it's a machine and it's not. It's it's this complex system that's made up of hundreds of billions of decisions by individuals who have different goals, different appetites for risk, different abilities. And that's been changed. This is kind of like a sneak attack on the free enterprise system by people who believe in a command economy. And they believe they can tell us you know, when it's okay to shop, where to shop, uh, and what jobs are and are not essential or what businesses will or will not be supported. And I don't know how quickly you recover from that. And my analogy was, imagine a model airplane that was where where every person on the planet had put together one piece, a decal, a piece of the landing gear, uh, you know, whatever, but it had billions of parts. And then imagine taking that plane, which is hanging up from your living room, and smashing it into pieces in your living room. And then telling one person or two people, okay, put that back together. They're not going to put this back together. And there, there are jobs that will not come back. There are people who, who will not start businesses. And uh, I think that's a big, big setback, both in real life, in the real economy, and then mentally. I think there's some people who were so scared, particularly in your country, by the, the idea that merely going out your front door was tantamount to homicide that you might be killing other people, that their behavior economically will be modified for a long time. There'll be other people who get back right on the horse and, and want to live their life. But I think governments have really, really frightened individuals in their economic behavior. And they've done maybe not irreparable damage to the real economy, but it'll be a lot worse than they, than they think. In some ways, they probably did too good a job. Well, and I think no one knew, you know, uh, but this is, I don't think people initially, everyone thought that the path, correct path would be to assume the worst and and not take silly risks. 
But maybe what we'll find out later is that epidemiological models aren't that much better than hedge fund models or economic models, that modeling behaviors of, of viruses is as difficult as it is modeling behaviors of individuals because you know people aren't machines either they're they're human beings who make who take human action as ludwig von mises said so i don't want to bash the uh the the modelers who told us that how many people would die if we didn't if we if we didn't do what they said but the politicians their incentive is to to not get blamed for making a mistake yeah and so you know, in the corporate world, if profit maximization is the incentive, in the political world, risk minimization is the incentive. And the best way to take to minimize risk is to take no risk at all. Don't even get out of bed. The safest thing you can do each day is to stay in bed, because that way no one's going to get hurt. Of course, that's that's no way to live. But uh, I think they will have set the animal spirits of a lot of people will have been subdued by this initial panic. And my feeling is that part of the panic was medical initially, and then it became political. Then people said, hey, guess what? We can use this to shape people's behavior in the way we want. And now I think people are fighting back against that. I I certainly thought that potentially for the freedom of us in the UK would be linked to the health app that's that's come out. And I, I think that seems to be pretty much the intention yeah it's terrible i mean it's just it's uh, again from a from a technology point of view just because we're able to do it doesn't mean we should do it and to me this is just a further step to permission-based living that uh not just how you spend your money but where you go and who you're allowed to meet and how long you're being there that's up until the last 20 years it was not possible for government to conduct that kind of surveillance on the population. So they had to scare people into modifying their behavior by implementing a police state with secret police. But now uh, uh, your neighbor is part of the secret police. If they call you in, like that happened, that's happened here. I know it's happened there. It happened in Australia. The number of people calling the police to dob in their neighbors (laughs) for an infraction, you know, the East Germans would have blush at what we've become. And now we have Google and Apple creating technology that they're going to share with the government. And, and, and opting out of that now makes you suspect because you have something to hide. And to me, that that's, again, a point that Orwell made is privacy is not about concealing behavior because you have something to hide. It's about not being able to function as a normal human being, knowing that there's a predator watching you, that you just don't live a full life. And this goes back to us being mammals on the savanna. If there's a lion around the corner, you know, it's going to modify your behavior. And in some ways, that knowledge of risk is probably pretty healthy. That's a lot different than the government saying, you can't travel, you can't buy things, you can't go places, you can't do anything unless we know what it is, unless you're allowed to do it. And if that's the result from all of this, I'm out. You know, I'm moving to the hills and I'm out. I'll never, there's a chance that I would never end up coming to London again if I have to show a bio, biological passport to get in the country. But, you know, I won't go that far yet, but I'm worried that that's where we're headed. But it's not just here though. And it's, it's anyone with a smartphone. I mean, the, the, the big data companies, you know, Apple and Google have been tracking us all the time anyway. They know where we've been. They know what we've done. They know who we've met. 
all that data's there. It's just, you know, to say that we needed a health app to, to get it out and the cost of it is just astronomical. But if anybody's got an iPhone, you can just go look at your... Go, go to the settings, go look at location, and it will even tell you, like, the actual places that you've been to. The, and they, they call it, what's it called? Something like um, important locations or something like that. So it, and it will tell you where your car's parked, even though you've not told it anything. This is designed to sell you things, of course. Yeah, and I'll tell you a funny anecdote, even though I'm, I'm alarmed by it, is that uh, when you agree to uh, terms and conditions, and you give your informed consent to those conditions to use a service, that's just called voluntary exchange. So if Google says you need to have your location data on for you to use Google Maps, I can either use it or I can choose not to. Uh, same thing with all the other stuff. Uh, so for example, when I lived in London last time, I found out the third most visited location on my phone, where my phone checked in, was the Dean Swift pub down in Shad Thames, which was, uh, you know, like about 50 meters from my apartment. So it was a frequent stop. Um, so I wasn't, but I didn't mind uh, that that my data was being uh, used to provide me what Google thought would be better services because that was an agreement I entered into voluntarily. What I do object to is now the idea that public and private data will be synthesized in a form of mass surveillance, which I have no choice but to accept. I cannot opt out of it. And further, uh, the data will determine in some kind of social credit score way what privileges, commercial and political, I have in a free society. That's totally different. And I hope that the privacy guys find a technological solution to this and say, we can anonymize it and we can we can make sure that that it's not used as a tool of not just surveillance, but oppression. But man, I was convinced that, that, that to get out of this lockdown, everyone's going to have to download that app. And that, that's what they were talking about in Australia as well for contact tracing. But you know, the contact tracing is, is a counterintelligence exercise that is used to map the connections between people the government thinks are subversive or dangerous and who they're talking to. The U.S. did this in the Philippines back in uh, in the early 20th century, late 19th century, and now they just have a more sophistic- sophisticated way of doing it. So my, that might sound paranoid. I know they're genuinely trying to prevent the spread of a highly communicable disease, but now I think a lot of people have seen it as a way of establishing permanent technological control over uh, people's mobility in society, and that's... That's frightening to me. I'm just seeing if this this beam here will take my my body weight. <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I mean, I think on the face of it, you know, the the way we might not be happy with with what's happening, but it's it's a bit like, you know, it, you, obviously you're taking a different view here, Dan, and you're saying if this is if this is what we we've got to do, you're going to opt out. You're not going to do it. I, I personally just think, okay, I, I can complain about it and I might not, I can see what's going on, but I'm I'm going to have to just get on with it. And that's pretty much as far as it will go. It's a bit like with the markets, yeah, they're distorted, but you kind of take that into, into account and you just have to invest accordingly, knowing with your eyes open what's going on. Um, to, to take it any further, I, I, you know, I wouldn't want to sort of uproot my family and go and 
only use a burner phone and you know live in the mountains somewhere and and be completely cut off from society i i just don't think that's that would be the right response but and i don't i don't think i have strong enough views that would warrant needing to do that you know i i i see what the government doing and I whether it was by design or or whether they've just not let a good crisis go to waste um and implemented these these measures that we wondered whether one day they would come in anyway um you know I I personally don't think I can do anything to stop it and and so I know that's that might sound like a defeatist yeah it might sound it does sound defeatist but I but I just can't see the reason why I say this is because um, there is one series on TV that I absolutely love, and that's Better Call Saul. It's my favourite. It's better than Breaking Bad. And it's based on a real lawyer. And this guy who it's based on, this this real American lawyer, and he would he would represent anybody, whether you're a drug dealer, you're a killer, you know, whatever you've done, he doesn't care. He would He would represent you and try and get you off and... That's what's so interesting about the the ethics of Better Call Saul when you when you watch the series, if you've seen it. But one thing he said is, I'll never go against the US government. And the only people that scare me are the US, US government. And he deals with drug cartels and people like that when he's, you know, trying to defend people and operating in a very, very shady circles. And for him to say that has always stuck with me is they're not people that you mess with. You just don't because they've got they've got all control. And whether we like it or not, they have. And so you can complain about it, but you've just got to get on with it. <laughs> well, yeah, that that's about right. I think a lot of people share that view. I mean, I, it's probably um, naive or maybe uh, romantic to think that people uh, govern, the government governs with the consent of the governed, and people can withdraw that consent and they can redress their government for grievances, or they can petition them, uh, and that uh, the government is supposed to be of the people, by the people, and for the people, not a separate entity that has authority over the people. And whether that's even legitimate or relevant to modern American society, I don't know. But I can tell you there's at least 100 million armed Americans who still hold some version of that view. And uh, at least in this country, it's going to be very difficult to displace the idea that we just have to accept it and get along with it. Mm. So uh, that's why, to me, it feels more like 1968 in that respect, a, a genuine cultural reckoning about how we agree to govern or be governed. I think one of the other issues is that that where politics is... I mean, I, I've never really liked politics anyway, because I think to be a politician, you have to basically be the sort of person who is quite willing to just lie about your how you feel about stuff. You know, you, you, you just cannot tell the truth and be a politician, which is why I think you never get any decent businessmen becoming politicians because being a businessman is all about the truth and being involved in the markets is all about the truth. But being in politics, you can, you, you just have to lie your way and have a, lie your way through it and have a, a certain mindset that is something that I don't really respect. Now, I know there are different versions of politicians and there's some some who are obviously much better than others. Um, but they never get very high because ultimately the higher you go, the more pressure there is for you to conform and there's more 
there's more dark forces that um, make you do what big business and crony capitalism want you to do, and eventually you'll just get kicked out anyway. Yeah, well, uh, Tim mentioned Jefferson, and Jefferson thought that the Constitution should be essentially rewritten or renegotiated every generation. <laughs> that uh, if people, the longer that it stayed in power, people were more likely to take on debt uh, and pass it on to next to future generations. And that if you wanted to have a sort of coherent, cohesive civil society, people had to at some level uh, uh, share the same values, at least politically. You know, they didn't have to enjoy the same food or music or cultural taste, but they had to agree that uh, individual liberty was more important than equality, um, that both might be important, but it wasn't the state's role to make everybody equal. And, uh, you know, that hasn't, we haven't had that discussion in a long time. So I don't think, and I agree with you, that the political system is not capable of producing consensus on those issues anymore. It's just about um, capturing the levers of power and distributing that money to your friends. And uh, to me, the the financially and, and politically, that, that makes it much more prone to uh, a, a, a political reset, which is a revolution. So either 1789 France or 1968 U.S., so if you had to take a guess, do you think the markets, as they stand at the moment, will continue into new highs in, say, six to 12 months' time? Or, or do you think the opposite? Well, I think as long as they're driven by liquidity, that, that they can go higher. But I think the real effect on GDP from unemployment and from failed businesses and, and contracting global trade is impossible to hide in terms of earnings. So all you really get is massive multiple expansion. And as long as the firehouse of money uh, uh, remains confined in the financial ecosystem, then yes, it's possible to get higher asset values. But um, I, I, I think you saw a 35% fall in the S&P when the virus kicked in and then a 35% rally. That's consistent with what happened in 1929 and also in 2000. So I would expect that before the end of the year, the bear market will resume. I don't think this is a bull market. I think this is a bear market rally driven by liquidity and the damage done to corp- corporations and real people, consumer spending is going to be impossible to conceal, even for the fake money people at the Fed. So you said you had money in cash, but but presumably there are better places to have it if you if you want protection. Yeah, I'm desperately trying to get rid of it. That's why I'm here in in uh, Colorado. Well, you uh, can send some over. We'll, we'll happily take it off you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I think Tim made an interesting suggestion about inflation-protected uh, bonds, uh, although in the U.S. I've looked at tips, and um, there's, now the Fed is practicing what they call curve control, where they're capping uh, real yields and nominal yields by essentially manipulating the interest rate curve. So I think financial instruments make it really hard for you to protect yourself from inflation. So I'm taking, I'm looking to get that cash into uh, assets, uh, real assets. So uh, obviously gold and silver, which I have a position in anyway, but in real estate, uh, just just because I don't want it to be in um, in in paper notes. Uh, so, but it's hard to do right now because a lot of people feel like things are getting back to normal. So you haven't really seen a market, what I would call a market clearing price in real estate, which is also a function of the Fed's policy. If they don't allow businesses to fail and if they support the real estate market by uh, delaying defaults on retail mortgages or preventing people from having to sell, then they're then there is not a market clearing price where people with money will come in and buy those assets. 
So I'm looking, but you know, it's we're in this weird phase where I think people are ha- asking that very same question, Paul, about should I just to get along, go along, or should I uh, should I be uh, headed for the hills and trying to bunker down? So mm. I'm I'm a little of both, but I'm I'm in the hills right now. Yeah, it just seems that real estate is one of the obvious answers, but it's also one that the government can quite easily decide to tax you know if you get a big run-up in 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 prices then actually what's surprising about america is that you pay a percentage of the value of your property every year don't you in property tax yeah that's right it varies from from jurisdiction to jurisdiction but there's certainly ways they can discourage uh, capital from going into real estate by changing how it's taxed yeah Um, so you know what you end up owning at the end of the day is a is an asset that's harder to to repossess, but they can make it harder for sure. I, I just meant not necessarily to do that, but just to try and claw back some of the money that they're spending. So what is the percentage? I, I, I seem to think it was it's something like half to 1%. Is that right? That sounds a bit high. So I'm just questioning my memory. For property tax? Yeah. It varies from state to state. Uh, and because the in a federal system, you know, uh, for example, there are seven US states that don't have an income tax but they have a higher sales tax or a higher property tax. And there are other states where uh, they have uh, an income tax, but property taxes are lower. So um, here in Colorado, I'm looking at states that don't have an income tax, but I'm also looking at what the property tax levels are. Amazing. Right. Tim, have you got (laughs) – you've been very quiet, Tim. I hope you haven't told yourself. This is is the body swaying gently (laughs) in the wind. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder about my slightly defeatist point of view, and I wonder whether you have something to say about that. No, no, no. I, 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 I'm kind of with you. I mean, on the one hand, you, you, you kind of want to be stoic, and on the other hand, you kind of want to be activist. Mm. So perversely, you're in this kind of. Well, I suppose we're living in, the, in, a, in a world of contradiction. So this is just another one that we have to have to have to live with. But. Um, I, I just get the sound. I think I'm with Dan to the extent that, well, my favorite my favorite cheesy quote is a Lily Tomlin one, which is things are going to get a lot worse before they get worse. I think that's probably my perspective on this. Well, I would say this too, that I, I'm not wholly um, uh, pessimistic or fatalistic that you know, this is part of the original question you had about Agora's approach, which is not just Agora's approach. It's it's partly Marcus Aurelius and mm. Picaro and, and uh, even... Um, who was the guy that was the that got executed? I'm trying to remember. Oh, uh, Boethius, the Constellation of Philosophy. Mm. You know, when the world sucks uh, and kicks you in the teeth, which it does to everyone eventually, the only thing you really have control of is how you're going to react to it, your own mm. mental mindset. It doesn't change the physical facts. There are things that are always beyond our control, uh, financially, politically, uh, no matter what. So, so that I believe, and I believe that you you have to embrace and take control of that take control of your own uh your own reactions to things and and decide how you're going to live the world will go on you know the people will read about us and say oh geez what did they do so you you just have to get on with it you have to get on with living your life and making decisions and going out your front door and assuming the risk and and not assume that this is the worst it's ever been for anyone it's not it's just just different. Before we go to media picks, uh, Dan, any 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 sort of final comments you'd like to make? No, no. So, uh, you know, it's pretty wide range, and I enjoy you guys giving me some uh, 
some free reign to talk about stuff that's maybe people think is usually further afield than whether a 60-40 portfolio <laughs> is the is the best choice right now. But uh, you know, we hope that having these discussions can can uh, can can at least give people another perspective on what's going on. And our primary mission is to is to help people not lose money. So you know, in a bull market, it's about what you should buy and are you going to make more with cryptos or pot stocks? I don't think that's the kind of world we're in. So, so that's why my focus is fairly defensive. Personally, I, you know, I'm quite happy to be alive and I'm close to my family and I'm going to be in the mountains for the summer. But I think financially, the, the balance of risks is uh, toward a, a bigger fall in stocks and another yeah. leg down in the bear market. So you should position yourselves that way. But to, to make the world more palatable for me in my media consumption, I've been watching, I've been binging on science fiction shows on Netflix. So my two uh, recommendations would be a series called Altered Carbon. Oh, yeah. I'd heard about that. Is it good? Yeah. So, uh, you know, they're all kind of the same, but it, I like it. It's it's where your consciousness can be stored basically on a flash drive and and then kind of suspended for hundreds of years and re-sleeved into a new body, uh, which might be not bad right now. You could come back <laughs> to a couple hundred years. So. How did it all turn out? And the other one is called Travelers, which is uh, similar that people have uh, in the future, which is horrible and dystopian, they've developed a technology to transfer consciousness into uh, a living body of someone who's, who they know is about to die. And then these teams of people try to reshape the events that led to the catastrophe in the future. Um, so they're both goofy. Uh, but it, you know, to to square the circle, like you said earlier, mm. at the end of the day, you have to decide what you're going to do with your life, uh, not just your money, and you have to go out there and live it. And and there's there's a certain amount of the future that just cannot be de-risked. <laughs> no, it's just unknown. Uh, but it doesn't diminish the um, the level of uh, freedom that you have to make choices. You may not like the outcome. And you may not even like making the choices, but for now, you still have the freedom to choose. So uh, that's why I like science fiction, because it, it always holds on to that hope that no matter what, what happens in the future, uh, you're going to live in it. So you better decide how you want to live in it. Those, the, those two choices remind me of a, a tweet I saw. There was a guy that had spent like half a year on the International Space Station. And someone said, "I know what. When, when he when he finally lands, let's all let's all put on chimpanzee costumes for a laugh." <laughs> <laughs> Superb. So, what's yours, Tim? Mine. So, um, I, I can't I can't really follow Dan. So, I'm going to go for a very 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 sort of well, an insubstantial one, but very very enjoyable for for anyone that uses Twitter. Um, until until uh, the Donald bans it from it for everybody. Um, there's a guy Andrew Cotter, who's a sports uh, commentator. I think golf is his is forte. On Twitter, he is at Mr Andrew Cotter C O T C O T E R, and he basically is taken to doing uh, commentaries on his two dogs, uh, Mabel and Olive, as they do things like stand in the river or oh, attempt yeah, yeah. to chase birds and they are just wonderful so the my, the best the best thing to have come out of lockdown is is the work of andrew cotter which is just hilarious really fabulous stuff and they're they're, they're any short form so they're like two minutes long but they're very very good 
he is a perfect follow for anyone that needs cheering up. I totally agree that the there's plenty of reasons to be optimistic, and that's one of the things about being in the markets. There's always opportunity, and I always mm. think there's always opportunity in business, and there's always opportunity in the markets, and there always will be. Now, mine's going to be, I was going to recommend hypernormalization because I see it's on YouTube, and I wanted to mention it at the top of the show. It's Adam uh, Curtis, Adam isn't Curtis, it? Yeah. yeah, and that so that's on YouTube. But I can see on the list of suggestions that's very close to it, AlphaGo, and I know you. I think you, Tim, recommended. I liked. I liked that one. Yeah. I think you recommended it a, a while back, and it was on, I think Netflix. But if it's on YouTube, you've got to take the opportunity to watch it because it's absolutely fantastic. So AlphaGo is going to be my seconded uh, media pick. But I'll also put a link to Hypernormalization, depending on what sort of mood you're in. If you want something a little bit darker, that's well worth watching. There is there is also a, a superb spoof of Adam Curtis on YouTube. I forget what it's called, but <laughs> yes. it's extremely funny. So I've seen it, yeah, because he's got, he's got a certain style that is, you know, it, it, it begs to be spoofed. Um, it it does. It is very spoofable. It's yes. a very spoofable style. Excellent. I'm adding both of those because so, I've I've managed to depress myself. So I'm going to go watch those, <laughs> cheer myself up. Dan, if someone listening to this wanted to follow you or get more information about your your publications, maybe subscribe. How would they do that? So I'm on Twitter with Tim. Uh, a very select audience so far. I'm at at Daniel K. Denning, D-E-N-N-I-N-G. And then uh, the newsletter, if they're interested, is the Bonner Denning Letter. And they can subscribe to that at bonnerandpartners.com. That's B-O-N-N-E-R, Bill Bonner, bonnerandpartners.com. So uh, they can, the newsletter is just once a month. And then uh, Twitter is probably five or six times a day. Oh, really? So you like Tim, very active. Yeah, I, I got rid of all my other social media a couple of years ago, but I find that properly curated and uh, engaged with a modicum of discipline, Twitter adds value to my life most of the time. Great stuff. Here, here. Great here, stuff. Here. Superb. Dan, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much. Thanks, Dan. Take care. Appreciate it. Yeah, no worries. Talk to you guys soon. And thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it. And we'll catch you next time. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.